What's up, this your boy Lil Duval, and check out my podcast, Conversations with Unc, on the Black Effect Podcast Network. Each and every Tuesday, Conversations with Unc podcast feature casuals and in-depth talk about ebbs and flows of life and the pursuit of happiness. Unlike my work on stage, I tap into a more serious and sensitive side to give life advice and simply offer words of encouragement, yet remind folks to never forget to laugh. Every Tuesday, listen to Conversations with Unc, hosted by Lil Duval on the Black Effect Podcast Network, iHeartRadio app, or wherever you get your podcasts. Presented by AT&T. Connecting changes everything. When you buy Kroger brand products, you feel like you're winning. That's because they offer proven quality at lower than low prices. In fact, we guarantee that you and your family will love how Kroger brand products taste. Or you get your money back. So next time you're shopping for the family, look for delicious Kroger brand products. Because they'll make you all feel like you're winning. Shop now, in-store, or online. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Open a limited-time 11-month certificate at Kemba Financial Credit Union. At 5.25% APY, it's more than triple the national average, plus it's a safe and secure way to grow your money. Visit your local branch or kemba.org slash cd for details. Offer expires May 31st, 2024. APY equals annual percentage yield. Restrictions apply. $500 minimum and $250,000 maximum deposit. Advantage status required. Comparison based on bank rate average. Federally insured by NCUA. It's brand new season two. I'm Marissa Thalberg. And I'm Stephen Wolf Bededa. And we're excited to be back having bigger, bolder, and always real conversations. Straight from the C-suite front lines of marketing, media, and more. We have great friends joining from people you may know, like Wilmer Valderrama and Bobby Burke. And people you'll want to know. So grab a coffee or, hey, even an Aperol Spritz and come join us on America's number one podcast network, iHeart. Listen to brand new on the iHeart Radio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Oh, hi, I'm Rachel Zoe, and my podcast, Climbing in Heels, is back and better than ever. You might know me from the Rachel Zoe Project, or perhaps from my work as a celebrity stylist. And guess what? I'm still just as obsessed with all things fashion, beauty, and business. Climbing in Heels is all about celebrating the stories of extraordinary women, and this season is here to bring you a weekly dose of glamour, inspiration, and fun. Listen to Climbing in Heels every Friday on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Brought to you by Toyota. Let's go places. Welcome to Forward Thinking. Hey there and welcome to Forward Thinking, the podcast that looks at the future and says I'll probably be some kind of scientist building inventions in my space lab in space. I'm Jonathan Strickland. I'm Lauren Vogelbaum. And I'm Joe McCormick. And you know, if you listen to this podcast, you're well aware that we love space. Yeah, if you don't listen to this podcast, how are you hearing us now? Some people might watch this podcast and not know why it has no content. (laughs) Maybe they absorb it as as, uh, vibrations through their fingertips. It's like some sort of osmotic process. Yeah. Uh, so in recent episodes, we've talked about all kinds of space exploration projects. We've talked about Mars. Mm-hmm. We've talked about terraforming. We've talked about the moon. Yep. We've talked in the past about space tourism. Asteroid mining. Asteroid mining, certainly. But w- today we wanted to talk about space stations and specifically because we have talked about the ISS before uh, and about uh, public space stations. But we wanted to ask the question today, what about private space stations? Yeah. yeah. Will, will we get to a future where... Uh, you can find, uh, you know, a space station brought to you by Home Depot. The Home Depot station. Yeah. Right up until it gets bought by Smoothie King, and then yeah. it'll be the Smoothie King station. Yeah. Made out of particle board. I, I'm wondering how hard it would be to find specific types of nails floating in microgravity. Uh-huh. <laughs> hmm. Seems like that might be a poor choice. But, no, we, seriously, though, we really wanted to talk about it. We're We're entering this era. We're in the era of private space industry. We've got companies that are private companies that are launching stuff into space. It is not going to be that long from now when we start seeing private space stations. Maybe hypothetically. Maybe hypothetically. Because, of course, there aren't any right now. But there are a lot of plans for such a thing. So we want to kind of explore that and talk about why that might very well be a necessity in the not-too-distant future. Yeah, because because the public space industry has been working pretty great-ish sometimes. 
a little bit uh, so far. But but yeah, but there's so much promise in, in private companies getting to this kind of thing. And uh, and we're not sure what's going to happen to the ISS. Yeah. I mean, eventually it's going to plummet in through orbit into the ocean. It will be deorbited. Yes. Hopefully on purpose. <laughs> Fingers always crossed. Yeah. Uh, but, but you know, first of all, it, the, the ISS was not designed to last forever. Right. Yeah, so until a couple of years ago, the ISS, uh, it had a funding lifetime, right? So there's a certain amount of time that people have committed to funding missions and maintenance of the ISS. And, sure. Uh, for a while, that was set to expire in the year 2020. Then in January 2014, NASA announced the Obama administration had approved extension of the ISS that would keep it running until at least 2024. So that's the date as of now. Right. Uh, now, uh, ongoing research projects were cited as a major re- reason for the extension, including research into the effects of long-term spaceflight on the human body and also the role I- uh, the ISS is going to play in helping advance the next phases of NASA space exploration, like missions to Mars or asteroids. And, and the twin study was kind of part of that, right? It was that idea of studying the effects of space on a human and then comparing that person to a, a, a you know a, their twin yeah. who had stayed here on earth for that duration right and to say like well this this is a way for us to better understand those effects so that we can take that into account for missions that would take people into space further and longer than ever before uh, right, but the station is kind of getting up there in, in age. It's going to be 30 in 2028. Or, well, so it's starting to get up there. It will have gotten up there in the future, <laughs> grammatically speaking. And uh, and that's 30 years is about as long as most of its structures were intended to last. And, and sure, the station is modular, but some of the really important bits that are a little bit persnickety, like, say, the solar panels, might start blowing out a little bit earlier than that. So, so a- as it gets older, it's going to be more expensive and more difficult to keep keep it in orbit. Uh, and, and yeah, ultimately, its fate is known. Right, right. And, I mean, th- there's no surprise here, right? We cannot perpetually maintain and, and replace parts on the space station. Eventually, it gets to a point where it no longer makes financial sense, let alone uh, a sense on a technological or scientific level. Yeah, at some point, it's like, you know, when you were in college and you realized, like, it would just be simpler to throw my clothes away and go buy new clothes <laughs> than to try and do laundry at this point. Yeah, like new socks are cheaper than washing my socks. So, right. uh, so well, I, I was thinking more along the lines of I'm spending more per year trying to maintain this this lemon of a vehicle uh-huh. than sure. it would cost me to go out and buy even just a used car. <laughs> yeah. So ultimately, uh, if if all goes as planned, the ISS, when it reaches its expiration date, is going to come down into Earth's atmosphere in a flaming ball of death, but hopefully no real death, because uh, in the case of the ISS, this will be a controlled re-entry exactly. that takes place in the southern Pacific Ocean to a place known... Uh, in, it, I, this is delightful. It's known as the Spacecraft Cemetery. Aww. It's where we send all of our dead spacecraft. Right. Well, I mean, it makes sense, right? You want to be able to have a controlled deorbiting. You want it to go to a place that is uninhabited, uh, to have the least impact for the you know least impact on on the environment as you possibly can. Mm-hmm. And the reason why you want to deorbit in the first place is that you don't want to leave stuff just in space. First of all, it's going to deorbit eventually anyway it'll right. it'll lose speed and it will end up crashing to earth possibly over a populated area if you haven't done it you know in a controlled manner plus you don't want to leave space junk out there it just means that it's going to be another thing to avoid with future space missions so this is not something that is necessarily like a, a sad thing i mean it's sad well, in the sense of seeing like an era pass sure but it's it's something that we we knew what we were getting into when we built the thing <laughs> mm-hmm. uh yeah and we've kind of been talking about it in terms of of the united states funding but of course a large part of the three words in the title of the space station is international yes this, this is a collaboration between i believe 16 countries right now um, a bunch of them, at yeah. any rate, and uh, and and it and it is a huge undertaking. I mean, it, it is like nine hundred thousand pounds moving five miles a second, enduring temperature swings of like five hundred degrees Fahrenheit between sunlight and shade. Uh, it's 
it, it, it takes a lot to keep this thing in the air, including this wonderful international collaboration. I mean, it takes a village to maintain a international space station. <laughs> Pretty maintain sure. Maintain it. Well, it's often cited as the as the most challenging engineering project in the history of humankind. And and I think it would be challenging not just because of the technological aspect, but because you're talking about international collaboration, which yeah. at times can be a little tricky. Yeah. yeah. And even the different modules might end up going their own way. There are uh, reports that once the project comes to an end, the Russian modules are going to be removed and used to form an independent space station known as the Russian Orbital Station, or ROS. Mm-hmm. Uh, and the, uh, it's, so the, this comes from the Russian space contractor RKK Energia. So they plan to detach the forthcoming Nauka ca- uh, module from the ISS and use it as a basis to attach other modules and build a fully functional Russian space station once the ISS is decommissioned. Yeah. Ah. And I like how, how space stations to me are, are kind of like a real world Voltron mm-hmm. where, you know, other parts just kind of dock on and you, you do get these modules that when you put them together create something greater than, than the sum of its parts. Really. Yeah. Right. So we, we've got this complicated, um, relationship between various nations that are collaborating on the International Space Station. But that's not the only player in the game. Like we were saying at the beginning of the episode, private space industry is now a real player, too. Who who is delivering things to the space station right now? Right. SpaceX. Yeah. It's a big one. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, and, and NASA is definitely increasingly interested in partnering with private industry in order to get stuff done that it can't afford to get done itself. Um, and, and ostensibly to also grow the private space industry, but I think it's kind of more the former. I could be wrong. Um, uh, Boeing, for example, has been a really huge partner in the ISS over, over many, many years, uh, providing hardware and software and docking systems and communications and, and all kinds of stuff. And, uh, I haven't personally heard about Boeing looking to get into the space in- space station industry itself, but uh, but this next company that we're going to talk about definitely has. Yeah, uh, one thing we should mention is that in most cases, I, I would argue in, in pretty much every case, the companies we're talking about, just like the nations we've talked about, weren't necessarily in charge of a big manufacturing system that just created. Uh, space stations all, you know, in, in parts that then could be assembled in space. Usually you're talking about entities that are contracting with other companies to create uh, various elements, right? Mm-hmm. So, I mean, that's the way NASA's been forever. Uh, every NASA spacecraft has been the product of uh, NASA partnering with private industry to create those things. But in this case, we're talking about actual private companies overseeing that process from beginning to end, not trying to submit a proposal to a government agency, get rewarded a contract, and then do it. So now we're looking at a whole new world of space stations. And we've even got a, a an example we can look at as sort of a, a test run of a private a privately built uh, module or habitat, if you prefer, mm-hmm. that is being tested right now as part of the International Space Station. Yeah, in fact, we talked about uh, inflatable modules a little bit when we talked a long time ago about space tourism. Yeah. Uh, b- because we were trying to say, okay, so imagine you're you're trying to create environments that can be inhabited on the surface of the moon or in space at the lowest cost possible, mm-hmm. uh, getting all these materials into orbit that you would need to assemble in order to make your rigid aluminum model uh, modules like in the ISS is expensive. Yeah. Uh, so what instead if you could just go blow up a big balloon in space? Right, right. And then live in it. <laughs> yeah. But, uh, but now there actually is such a balloon. Uh, yeah. yeah, that was a hypothetical the last time we talked about it. But BEAM, the Bigelow Expandable Activity Module, has has been sent up and inflated and people have hung out in it. Um, I mean, they haven't like thrown a party like that I'm aware of. No, they, they the, no the, the most they've done is had people in spacesuits test the air <laughs> inside <laughs> and then very quiet, quietly go back into the regular module and of the space station. The hatch. Right. Yeah, Lest exactly. they upset the balloon ghost. Right. <laughs> uh, no, so, so beam. Um, 
Okay, so uh, it's it's as we have been saying, this prototype inflatable space habitat, because traditional space habitats are a drag to create, mm-hmm. honestly. They, they require these heavy, rigid materials that are expensive to send into space and difficult to maneuver once you get them up there. Right. So, Bigelow Aerospace designed Beam, and this, this unit went up on a SpaceX Dragon resupply mission in April of 2016, and, and packed in there, it was a cylinder that was like 5.7 feet long, like that, very much like that, <laughs> and 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 about uh, seven point seven feet in diameter, which is a uh, like a like a smart car, okay? right? Yeah. Uh, if you need a visual, and uh, it was installed on the aft port of the Tranquility node by a robotic arm, which was controlled by an ISS crew member, and it contains a pressurization system with stored air. Mm-hmm. So in May, after a failed attempt, um, teams worked to expand the beam to its full size over the course of seven. Hours, So it is now a bubble that is 13 feet long and like 10 and a half feet in diameter, which is like a small room, which is what it is. Yep. Just a small room, you know, made with Teflon coated glass fabric. When it comes to space stations, you don't turn your nose up at any extra room. (laughs) That's true. Yeah. I mean, room (laughs) space in space, oddly enough, hard to come by. Uh Right. You'd think it being like hypothetically infinite but it is it is interesting now like as you were as you were just about to say lauren that the size of the room itself is larger than the spacecraft that was sent to carry it up there or larger than the cargo right larger than the cargo capacity because it is expanded to its full size now it's beyond what if it had been made out of rigid material it would have had to take a couple of trips up in a spacecraft of that size uh, and and that's one of the the biggest advantages of this approach is the idea that you can compress the full size of the habitat down to its packed size, mm-hmm. which is significantly smaller than what its unfurled size is. And if you're talking about rigid materials, it may not even be the, a weight issue. It may just be that you can't pack them in snugly enough for it to really make sense. Which means you have to send more missions up, which means it makes it more expensive. If you've ever been embarrassed while trying to move furniture and had to explain to somebody, no, it's not that it's too heavy for me. It's just awkward sized. I can't <laughs> right. get a good grip on it. Or you're, or you're, you've ever had to move and you are having, you're surprised at how many trips it takes from your old place to your new place because while your vehicle might be able to fit a lot of stuff in it, your stuff does not magically conform to the inside of the vehicle. Yeah, uh-huh. yeah, your Tetris game is not strong enough. Right. Uh, so, so yeah, so they, they did open it up, check out the inside, uh, collected an air sample uh, and data from some of their inflation sensors. They said it was cold, but, you know, otherwise pretty pretty cool. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. That was accidental. Right. Uh, and, and okay, it's, it's not meant to stay up there forever, and it's not meant to have people live in there or do science in there. It's really a two-year um, proof of concept of the technology. Right. So, so astronauts that are aboard the station and engineers Earthside and instruments in the module itself are going to be studying just how it's doing, like from the structural integrity of the thing to the leak rate of air to radiation and temperature levels, mm-hmm. also that we can kind of compare it back to the traditional rigid, Pain in the butt modules, and uh, and and see, see see if it stacks up. Right. Make sure that the claims that Bigelow makes about their design hold up to reality. Because mm-hmm. when you put real live people into that thing, you want to make sure that it is in fact as safe as the manufacturer believes it to be. You know, when you introduce a, a sort of uh, a skepticism there, that I think is going to be an important factor when we start considering. Uh, private companies getting into the space race. We need to make sure that the advertising uh, isn't leading us astray. Like, you can't always necessarily trust that someone who's selling a product is telling you everything that is true about it. Well, particularly yeah. when you talk about companies that are looking for funding, right? Yeah. Like then, <laughs> then it's like, well, do we tell them we think it's going to work, and uh-huh. if it if it does, it's going to be? Or do you say, no, this is going to be the most amazing thing ever? You want to get in on the ground floor? Yeah. Uh, I mean, yeah, and, you know. and I, I don't think it's going to be any kind of cases of of you know like like low radiation levels asterisk like <laughs> bottom of the page <laughs> like low compared to holding a uranium core like, <laughs> right. like, like that kind of thing. It's not but, a Fallout, kind of. <laughs> sure, sure. Like, I don't think anyone's going to be trying to, to purposefully trick anyone, but, th- right. but there might be optimism, and and uh, and certainly regulation is going to be an important part of all of this because traditionally speaking, 
we've never had private industry doing this kind of stuff. And, uh, and governments have been picky about what they subject their most prized military flight personnel to. Right. So, so at the end of this grand experiment, after they have run these tests and determined whether or not, in fact, it is as safe as traditional uh, spacecraft material or space station material, what happens then? It will be destroyed in reentry. Mm. Oh, man, yeah. we just can't make stuff without breaking stuff. <laughs> But that, no, but that's totally. I mean, how would you get it home? I mean, like, oh, yeah, like yeah. <laughs> the engineers, uh, they just want to watch it all burn. That's the yeah, whole that's right. reason they make these things. It's just a bunch of jokers coming back from space. Uh-huh. All right, that's uh, fair. But yeah, so, so the, the whole pro, the whole program um, is uh, co-sponsored by NASA's Advanced Exploration Systems Program, which is uh, which is the part of NASA that is particularly excited about fast tracking affordable technology for human exploration of space. And uh, so the Beam Project is is hoping ultimately, I think, to develop beyond Earth space habitats, not necessarily just in orbit. Mm-hmm. Um, but Bigelow is certainly using this as an initial step towards creating its own space station. Right. And you might wonder, all right, well, we've talked a little bit about the International Space Station and about a prototype approach to testing a technology that could potentially be uh, incorporated into a private space station in the future. Why would any company be interested in such a thing in the first place? Oh, yeah, it's such a huge undertaking. Why yeah. would you subject yourself to that? That's Why, terrible. It, it, it would cost millions of dollars in research and development and construction and launching. I mean, what's the payoff? Well, it's because there's money in space. What? Not literally, but, you know. Figuratively speaking. So space stations, one, can serve as a platform for satellite and spacecraft deployment and maintenance. So with the privatization of space launches, more companies are getting involved in creating and deploying satellites and other types of spacecraft. They need a place sometimes to act as kind of a a, a launching ground, not like you would on Earth, but a, a place to deploy that technology that is already in low Earth orbit. Space stations often provide such a platform. So that's one thing. So you, you could become like the truck stop to your spacecraft going out into either a, a another low Earth orbit or beyond. Yeah. The most expensive cramped truck stop you've ever experienced. Don't eat the egg salad sandwiches. Uh, <laughs> shrimp cocktails where it's at. We've talked about that numerous <laughs> times. Not uh, for me. I, I, I couldn't oh. have it. Oh, I'm sorry. Uh, Man, I, just, I bet I, the egg salad would be very bland in space. <laughs> Probably. Uh, that sounds to me like a great tagline for a terrible science fiction movie. Uh-huh. Uh, also, manufacturing. This is one of those things that seemed counterintuitive to me at first. The idea of sending stuff out into space for manufacturing purposes, because you would think the cost of getting it into space would negate any advantage you would have. In the, Especially if you want it back on Earth for something. Right. Uh, I actually remember I, I watched a science fiction film in which I criticized a bit of the film specifically for this, in which uh, uh, androids were being... Um, uh, built in a space station in orbit around Earth and then sent back down to Earth to act as, you know, workers and laborers. And I thought, well, that seems unnecessary and, and ridiculously expensive. Uh, I, it's actually one of the predict- predictions that Elon Musk has for the future that we'll uh, we'll we'll off base all of our heavy industry into into orbit. Well, for one thing, you don't heavy industry becomes practically weightless that way. Uh, it was a terrible joke, but it's actually true. I mean, there's because because of the nature of space, because you can work in a vacuum, you can work in microgravity. It opens up opportunities in manufacturing that are impossible to replicate here on Earth. And in some cases, it could be for like really precise chemical types of manufacturing, not just not just the sort of manufacturing we tend to think about, like building cars and stuff, but actually designer chemicals, things like medications or other chemical applications. So it's a a very real possibility that as we see the price tag come down for launching stuff into space, we could see more and more applications of manufacturing. I've seen a lot of stuff about 3D printing in space where it takes on a much different dimension than it does here on Earth. Another area where it could come in handy to have a space station, we actually alluded to this a little bit earlier, asteroid mining. Mm -hmm. Um, The whole idea of, of, of exploiting the asteroids that are in the solar system to get at resources that may be very plentiful on certain types of asteroids. Uh, it would be really helpful to have a place in space where you would have your, your various, uh, whatever, whatever units you have going out to asteroids to mine them 
to come back as uh, a place to exchange stuff and go back out again. Mm-hmm. Um, we've talked about using asteroids to mine water, uh, which you could then use to turn into rocket fuel. Uh, there's a lot of stuff that could potentially come in really handy, especially as you start talking about going further into our solar system, whether it's for exploration or a colonization or whatever it may be. Uh, and then space tourism. Of course. Yeah, to, to be able to create. Rent the, a cabin in space. Yeah, it's the, it's the ultimate, uh, adventure destination, right? Like it's the idea of going into space and staying aboard a space station, looking back at the Earth. Uh, so far, only seven private citizens have ever done this. And it wasn't for funsies. I mean, they, they were, they were up there conducting research. Well, they were, it was for funsies for them, but they also had to conduct research because oh. they paid for the privilege between 20 and 40 million dollars for, uh, and one of them went twice. And so there's only been seven people who have gone up who have not been part of an official cosmonaut or astronaut crew, mm-hmm. but paid for the privilege to go up aboard the International Space Station. They did have to perform experiments and stuff while we were, they were there. Space. It was part of their buy-in, yeah. Yeah, space and space, like we said, limited. So you gotta, you gotta work your, your shift. Yeah. yeah. Um, one of those people, actually no, one of the seven people who have been a private uh, citizen up in space. That would be Richard Garriott, uh, aka oh, right. Lord British. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So, um, it's interesting that, that has happened, but the cool thing about the private, the possibility of private space stations is that opportunity might open up to a broader audience than just super mega rich people, right? Like, yeah. it, I don't think most of us could afford a $20 million ticket for a vacation. Yeah. I know I couldn't. Especially not another $20 million for a return trip. Yeah. <laughs> like, well, you're here, but guess what? <laughs> you're going to stay here until you cough up another $20 million. No, uh I think sponsored visits are going to be a thing where, where people, oh, sure. uh, like a, a company says, you know, I, I will pay for your trip to the space station if what you do is talk about how great Cheetos taste in space. <laughs> Or, or something like like a vice being like, hey, like go up and get like the scoop on all of the. I don't know if that's how people advice talk. That was probably a really unflattering impression. I, I kind of want to start a Kickstarter now that's just titled "Send Kanye to Space." <laughs> I, and just raise that twenty million, not the right. Twenty is, million. Yeah. I didn't say bring him back. Are you saying so he can tell us how Cheetos taste? <laughs> no, uh, I mean you know I. I I haven't worked out the entire detail of the Kickstarter campaign, so just give me time. Uh, but no, space tourism, like w- with the private space industry, we're seeing the cost of launch come down slowly over time. We might be able to see it come to a point where more people could afford that experience. I don't think it's ever going to reach a point where the average person will be able to afford it. I think it's still going to be certainly in that luxury category, mm-hmm. but it'll be less than the 20 million that we've seen in the past, 20 to 40 million that we've seen in the past. And um, that to me is really exciting too. This idea that, that potentially if you had enough money, you could go and visit a space station and look back on the earth. That's something that you, you know, they, they haven't done that for years now aboard the international space station. Uh, that those seven people pretty much got in before that was shut down. So this would give that opportunity once again. So anyway, the point being that there there are a lot of different opportunities to make serious cash running a private space station, assuming you can work out the incredibly complicated details of building one, testing it, making sure it works, and then launching it and deploying it. Well, they've already done it once. How how hard can it be? <laughs> it only that, took that you know how it looks. Only took more than a dozen countries <laughs> collaborating with one another. Is it a hundred billion dollars? They say <laughs> that the space station costs. Yeah, but but the nice thing is that we can build upon knowledge, right? We know already things that work, and we even are seeing some really cool experiments. In fact, did you know that before? NASA uh, designed and built the International Space Station, they actually considered inflatable habitats as a possible uh, method of creating a, a, a space station. But huh. at the time, their materials were pretty flimsy. Goodyear was providing the rubber oh, goodness. for them to test it. But oh, goodness, they were using rubber. It was because that's they, they, sure. hadn't, they hadn't developed Kevlar yet. They yeah. hadn't developed stronger materials yet. And they did determine. They said, well, 
it's not going to be sufficient for blocking radiation, and it's not very resistant to ballistic impact. So it, ah. they, they said, we can't do this. Yeah. But now material science has caught up to the point where we do have, have flexible materials that are incredibly resistant to ballistic impact and, at least from what we've heard, are um, as effective at protecting against radiation as the traditional materials yeah. used. Uh, speaking of hearing, though, this is my pun transfer of the conversation topic. Uh, the, the, um, the the Bigelow inflatable beam thing is uh, it's hypothetically a lot quieter on the inside than a traditional aluminum capsule. So oh, the, uh, so acoustically. Acoustically, it's nicer to hang out in. I guess, I guess that makes sense because it's not a hard surface, right. so sound doesn't bounce off of it the same way it would inside a... A, a traditional space capsule. Yeah. I never thought about that, but that is interesting. I guess it's like being in a big pillow um, or a bouncy house just without the kids, which is my favorite way of being in a bouncy house. <laughs> um, so let, let's talk about some of the, the private space stations that are in various forms of development. There is the Bigelow Next Generation Commercial Space Station. Uh, so Beam is kind of like that that proof of concept to test the basic technology that would be incorporated on a much larger scale for this particular approach. Um, the base unit of the the Bigelow space station, should it actually become a thing, is the B-330, which is a, an expandable habitat that Bigelow has developed that will have 330 cubic meters of internal space. Now, if you compare that to the International Space Station's Destiny module, which is the primary operating facility for the United States research payloads, that has a 160 cubic meters of internal space. So it's much larger than the Destiny module. Module, But keep in mind, the Destiny module is just one part of the ISS. It's not the whole thing. But that means that Bigelow's habitat would have 210% more habitable space inside of it than the Destiny module does. However, it would only have an increase of 33% in mass. Ooh. Because that inflatable uh, design yeah. means it doesn't have to have as much of that bulky material. So you get 210% more space, but only 33% more mass. That's a pretty, pretty good, you know, trade. Pretty good deal. Yeah. yeah. Not bad at all. Uh, now, according to Bigelow, the B330 will provide radiation protection that's at least as good, if not better, than the current ISS modules. That's one of the things they are testing with Beam to make sure that that actually is accurate. Uh, and they also say that the hull would be more resilient to ballistic damage than the International Space Station currently is. So in other words, it would be an improvement in in those specific ways, uh, which you definitely want to hear that too. And its modular design would allow for multiple units to fit together. In fact, the space station would consist of two B-330 modules joined. Uh, they essentially kind of lock docking stations and become a larger unit that way. Uh, Bigelow has already partnered with United Launch Alliance to provide launch services for the two modules. Uh, ULA uses Atlas V rockets to launch payloads into space. And right now, they're looking at the possibility for launching these things as early as 2020. Uh, one module, they said, is already on schedule to be ready for launch by 2019, and the other one is scheduled sometime in 2020. So that means we could have uh, our public space station still operating at the time the private ones come, start to come online. That's right. That's right. Uh, to be fair, we don't have any information about where the private space station would orbit in relation to the International Space Station. That would be a very important piece of information. Mm -hmm. But uh, that has not been, uh, if it is known by anyone, it has not yet been publicly revealed. Um, but they said that one of the things they might do before they actually create the full private space station is dock one of the B-330 units with the ISS which would actually increase the ISS's uh, uh, capacity by, or, or volume, I should say, overall volume by 30%. Ooh. So oh. at least for a while, they would they would launch the first module up. It would dock with the ISS, presumably, assuming that NASA would agree to such a thing. They would launch the second one, and then the two would meet and become the, the Bigelow space station. Uh, it's not the only one that is being talked about. Bigelow is probably the one that that more space enthusiasts have heard about. It's It's been around longer. Uh, the idea has been around longer. Uh -huh, sure, and especially since they are currently conducting an experiment to see how well their technology works. It's It's got perhaps better street cred. 
Yeah, at least they've got an active test going on right uh-huh. now. So they have something to show for their plans. It's not like it's not like when we were talking about what is it? Is it Mars One? <laughs> the, oh, huh. the 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 yeah. the entity that's attempting to launch people into space to go and colonize Mars before anyone thinks it would be quite ready. Uh, it's not quite like that, right? They actually have stuff that they're showing that is beyond just just really idealistic. Yeah, uh, it's, it's uh, not talk. a fly by night. Yeah, space station. no, it's not a launch by night either. You launch in the daytime. Everyone knows that. Anyway, so uh, there's a there's a former NASA manager of the International Space Station who has recently uh, started up a company called Axiom Space LLC. That is uh, Mike Suffredini, who announced on June 22nd, 2016, just a few days before we record this podcast, that he was going to start this new company in order to develop a private space station. Now, it looks like this one is not going to be going the same path as Bigelow in terms of structural design. Yeah, according to uh, to Suffredini, he said that in order to make money, we have to get to orbit fast. I think it's going to take a while to build a spacecraft out of inflatable technology. So what oh. he's saying is it's not that Bigelow's approach is not going to work. He just thinks that it's... It's going to be slower in the long run. Slower. He, yeah, I think he believes that 2020 is run, way too aggressive to get an, an an inflatable habitat space station into orbit. I think that's essentially what he's saying here. Uh, but he hopes also to be able to attach a private module developed by Axiom Space to the International Space Station as a prototype testing ground. So it'd be kind of similar to Beam in that way. And once that that technology is proven to be safe and effective and be able to do all the things that the International Space Station is currently used to do, then it would transition that into creating its you know the, its own space station. That that unit would become the core of the new space station. And uh, he hopes to have a final design for their module by the end of this year. Wow. Which, you know, he just announced the company on June 22nd. He hopes by December to have a final design for the module. He hopes by January of next year to get a contractor to start building the thing. Wow. So incredibly aggressive and a very tight deadline. Uh, and the company also plans to launch by 2020 or 2021. So assuming that Bigelow's plans go on the way that they have intended – we could see two different private space station modules being launched into space around the same time with different design elements, totally different approaches uh-huh. to, yeah. to creating a space station. Does this one sound unrealistically aggressive to you guys? Uh, it sounds crazy aggressive to me. Like the design and building it th- – He's not talking about it being built by 2017, but being ready to launch by 2020 when he doesn't even have a final design yet seems really optimistic. Uh, if it weren't the, the one of the former head honchos involved in the ISS, I would say that it was mm-hmm. ridiculously aggressive. That's a very I, fair point. That that thing puts it down onto a merely mm, aggressive. Yeah, yeah. That's, that's fair. Level. Totally fair. Listen, I've done this before. Yeah. Right. <laughs> like, look, I've guys, done this twice I already, before. I already know what not to do. All right. <laughs> uh, yeah, that's 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 totally that's totally valid, and uh, it's interesting to think about. You know, th- these two very different approaches, and whether or not, like, it could very po- it could possibly get to a point where we see both actually active in low Earth orbit. Simultaneously with the ISS, yeah, yeah. and that would yeah. be amazing because now you're talking about a plethora of options. <laughs> considering that right now there is one, which doesn't make it an option; it's just your it's, only it's just, choice. It's just that choice. It's, the, um, it's either that or nothing. Yeah. yeah, but but this is the sort of thing that would avoid having a space monopoly, <laughs> which is something I think we don't want to see, uh, and it could mean that we continue to see a lot of innovation so that one company is always trying to have an advantage over the other, we all stand to benefit from yeah, that. Yeah, yeah, the, the private space race. I kind of like this idea. Yeah, yeah. But there are some challenges that we have to address. Uh, one of the biggest ones is one we've kind of talked about right now. 
that timeline to be able to develop this private space station technology and test it in a way where we can use the International Space Station as as sort of our, our home base, that timeline's getting shorter and shorter, assuming we don't see another extension uh, for the funding for the International Space Station. Right. Like right this very moment, we have approximately eight years left. If, yeah. if, if anyone wants to test their stuff on, on the ISS with NASA's uh, ben- benefaction. Um, hypothetically, the, the longest we're going to get is 12 years. And once the ISS is decommissioned, it's going to be a lot harder to test your your technology because you won't have that base to, to lock onto and be able to you know, remotely assess the feasibility and the and the efficiency of your technology. You have to figure out some other way of testing it that minimizes risk both to property and life. So that that's going to be a real big challenge once the ISS decommissions. And not only is there a short amount of time to get in that testing, but you also have to remember the International Space Station doesn't have an infinite number of docking ports. So if you wanna <laughs> if you wanna dock your your module to the International Space Station so that you can do Get testing. In line. Yeah. <laughs> you you better you better start building soon because uh, well I mean it all depends on how NASA decides who to partner with, right? Mm-hmm. We don't we are not privy to that particular process. Um I would imagine that Bigelow has since it has the the already existing uh relationship with NASA is in pretty good shape and then the fact that you have a former manager of the International Space Station heading the other company it's in pretty good shape too. So assuming unless he really burned his bridges, right? <laughs> he just flipped his desk and said, "See ya, losers! I'm out of here." And then left the door open as he left NASA. Yeah, I, I'm assuming that didn't happen. I'm not. Don't know, but I'm assuming. But uh, that means that they, you know, NASA has to juggle. Well, do we have the capability of allowing more than one to dock at a time? Uh, how how much do we want to keep these docking? ports open yeah. in case we need it for some other unforeseen circumstance. Or for our own stuff. Or, yeah. or I mean, can, can we just build a module that's nothing but docking points? <laughs> yeah, it's just... It's like just a dodecahedron that, of it, docking points? It's that connector, like any sort yeah. of building toy you have where you're like, I just I just need something like a Lego that has every every surface is <laughs> Lego because I just I need it to hold everything together. Um yeah, I mean, it, that it's a, just a logistic issue at that point, but it's a one that has a real impact. And when you're talking about a, a short timeline, every little thing like that matters. Yeah, um, and, and an, another potential hiccup or um, or holdup in all of this is something that we mentioned a little bit earlier. Um, there there aren't really regulations in place for for private industry being out in space right right now, and that is going to be a thing that will happen. Yeah, I mean, this is a field known as space jurisdiction, and you might say it's an underdeveloped field. Yeah, well, because <laughs> until recently, the only entities that were at all getting into space were were completely sponsored by nations. I mean, they were government agencies. So yeah. the rules... Which are governed by I- international treaty. Right, right. The rules that we created, the space law that we created, it it specifically pertains to nations, not private organizations, because at the time that we were drafting that legislation, you didn't think about a private company blasting off into space. That was beyond the, the capabilities that we had at the time. Yeah, but as we all know... Uh, businesses, private corporations and companies sometimes behave very well and sometimes behave not so well, or sometimes can even uh, be be criminally or civilly liable even if nobody did anything really bad on purpose. That's why we have corporations, because they are people and we can hold them accountable. <laughs> that never happens. Go ahead. So yeah, th- this whole thing of space jurisdiction, it's how laws are applied and enforced in space, and mm. it... Uh, it hasn't been too big of an issue with the remarkably well-behaved public servants who have been part of the uh, public and private expeditions up until now. But let's entertain a few weird scenarios. How about uh, a few private companies put privately owned space stations into orbit? One of these private companies goes bankrupt, can't maintain its space station. Nobody else wants to buy it. Its orbit decays, and because this was unplanned, it turns out the station may be entering the atmosphere somewhere where there's a small risk of intact debris from the station falling over a populated area. 
who is supposed to step in to prevent something like this from happening? And can people be held legally accountable? And if so, by whom? Yeah, all mm. I can imagine is is being like a shareholder in that company and the yeah. guy just shows up and says, hey, so you own stock in Spaceco. Uh-huh. Uh, it went belly up. It's your responsibility to to, to deorbit <laughs> Spaceco's right. space station yeah. over yeah. the Pacific. Or this, no, this, no. Is t- this is typically like the answer to this is usually Superman. Uh-huh. But, yeah. since, but since <laughs> right. we don't have that option. Yeah. Right. Right. Or uh, how about space collisions? Uh, yep. So one space station crashes into another because of negligence or you know error or or yeah. bus- a much simpler uh, to imagine scenario. I think businesses on Earth are often charged with illegal dumping of waste. This is a common problem that uh, that you know manufacturers get in trouble for. Let's say a private space station has a penchant for emptying some sort of solid waste into high velocity orbit. Some of this orbital waste damages another private company's space station. How do you sort that out? How do they? Uh, how does one get uh, restitution from the other, and in what jurisdiction? And we do have. I mean, we have a lot of space junk out there right now that, like, leftovers from essentially dead satellites, right? Yeah. So there, there really is the possibility that one company's dead satellite could eventually collide with a private company's space station. And then you have these very real questions about accountability and how do you handle this? And uh-huh. that could even involve satellites from companies that are no longer in business. It's it's This is a brand new frontier. Yeah, so I'm not saying it's impossible to figure this stuff out. I, no. I, I do think it's perfectly uh, reasonable to assume we will work out a framework for addressing the law as it applies in space, just like we have a framework for addressing the law as it applies in international waters. Sure. Uh, but it's something to be thinking about. Yeah, it's one of those things where it's it's good to go ahead and ask the questions and try and come up with some basic answers now when it's not entirely imperative. Like we're, we're like it's right. it's not that something has already happened and now we're trying to figure out how do we deal with that. It's better to go be preemptive about that sort of thing and say let's ask some questions of things and you know maybe maybe we assign each question a probability score. Like how likely is this to happen? And the the ones that are more likely, they get priority for us to figure out the answers to and things mm-hmm. like well what happens if a an alien comes aboard my space station and totally messes with it and ends up putting Pepsi logos all over my Coca-Cola space station. Listen, that goes at the bottom of the pile, right? Yeah. <laughs> we have some serious questions we want to answer first before we get into brand confusion. <laughs> like, like, why do aliens prefer Pepsi to Coca-Cola? Yeah, yeah well, yeah. clearly they didn't grow up in the South. Does Workman's Comp cover space madness? <laughs> You're coveting my ice cream bar. Uh, all right. Well, this was kind of a fun preliminary discussion. The really cool thing about this is that we don't have to wait that long to see some real progress on this front. Now, it may be that that 2020 date that both Axiom Space and, and Bigelow have set could be too optimistic. But even if that's the case, I suspect it won't be that much later before we start seeing some real progress. Yeah. So hopefully they stay on track because I would love to to see this like like actual talk of launching private space station components up into low Earth orbit in just four years? That's insane! I would love to see it happen. So here's hoping it all works out. Um, we're really excited to learn more about this and to kind of explore both the possible positive elements of private space stations as well as some of the concerns we might have. And Again, kind of address those in advance before it becomes a problem. Yes. Uh, but we got a lot of other stuff we got to talk about, too, because it turns out the future, it's about everything. Did you guys know that when you signed up for this? I didn't. It's crazy. So we have a lot more topics we're going to be talking about in future episodes of this podcast. But, hey, we get tired of choosing those all by ourselves. We love it when you guys pipe up and give us ideas and and ask us questions like, what will X be like in the future? Uh, please continue to do that. You can send us an email. The address is fwthinking at howstuffworks.com 
or you can drop us a line on Facebook or Twitter. On Facebook, you can search FW Thinking. We'll pop up. You can leave a message there. And we're just FW Thinking on Twitter. You can just at reply us, and we read all of those. We look forward to hearing from you, and we'll talk to you again really soon. For more on this topic and the future of technology, visit forwardthinking.com. Brought to you by Toyota. Let's go places. Open a limited-time 11-month certificate at Kemba Financial Credit Union. At 5.25% APY, it's more than triple the national average, plus it's a safe and secure way to grow your money. Visit your local branch or kemba.org slash cb for details. Offer expires May 31st, 2024. APY equals annual percentage yield. Restrictions apply. $500 minimum and $250,000 maximum deposit. Advantage status required. Comparison based on bank rate average. Federally insured by NCUA. When you drive a vehicle so reliable it's backed by a 10-year, 100,000-mile limited warranty, you stop thinking about what you can't do and start doing what you never thought possible. Visit your local Kia dealer today to see what you're capable of in a vehicle that inspires confidence around every corner. Kia. Movement that inspires. Call 800-333-4KIA for details. Always drive safely. Limited inventory available. Warranties include 10-year, 100,000-mile powertrain and 5-year, 60,000-mile basic. Warranties are limited. See retailer for details. It's brand new season two. I'm Marissa Thalberg. And I'm Stephen Wolf Bededa. And we're excited to be back having bigger, bolder, and always real conversations. Straight from the C-suite front lines of marketing, media, and more. We have great friends joining from people you may know, like Wilmer Valderrama and Bobby Burke. And people you'll want to know. So grab a coffee or, hey, even an Aperol Spritz and come join us on America's number one podcast network, iHeart. Listen to brand new on the iHeart Radio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Oh, hi, I'm Rachel Zoe, and my podcast, Climbing in Heels, is back and better than ever. You might know me from the Rachel Zoe Project, or perhaps from my work as a celebrity stylist. And guess what? I'm still just as obsessed with all things fashion, beauty, and business. Climbing in Heels is all about celebrating the stories of extraordinary women, and this season is here to bring you a weekly dose of glamour, inspiration, and fun. Listen to Climbing in Heels every Friday on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. If you want to level up your marketing and business knowledge, look no further than the Marketing School Podcast, hosted by Neil Patel and yours truly, Eric Sue. It is the number one marketing podcast on Apple and number 15 on business in the United States. Now, if you want to listen to interesting conversations with operators that have been there, done that, also with other interesting guests, then listen to Marketing School every weekday on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts.